0: Hey everyone, welcome to Shrink's Talk Shop, where psychotherapy experts share their thoughts with you. And you don't have to be a therapist to listen. First, a quote from one of this week's speakers.
1: Every addict loves getting high. What every addicted person wants, uh, more than anything in the whole world, is to be able to use their drug of choice and not get sick, not have consequences.
0: We're returning today to our three speakers on addictions this time discussing relapse, and as in our earlier podcasts, you'll hear different points of view. And I'm Barbara Alexander from On Good Authority, and this first episode of my podcast is taken from my recent interview with Dr. Mark Willenbring from the Alter Clinic for the Treatment of Addictions. So, here's the mystery. People have become addicted. They've nearly died. They've been in multiple rehabs, and yet... Well, why then do they relapse? I mean, why do they say, "I don't want to use, but I do want to use"? I wish I didn't want to use, but I well, I, I miss it.
1: Well, what they miss, in a way, it's it's, it's sort of like quitting smoking. There's sort of the what you might call the, the more physical kind of side of the symptoms, and then there's wanting escape. So typically with um, Opioid maintenance with buprenorphine or methadone. uh, People will no longer think about it. They'll no longer crave it. However, if they are, if they feel a certain way, they they may desire or miss the escape from a day to day reality. And that's true for every drug. The fact is, every addict loves getting high. What every addicted person wants, uh, more than anything in the whole world, is to be able to use their drug of choice and not get sick, not have consequences. So I think of it as kind of an acquired intolerance. That is, if they use it, they get sick. It's sort of like having gluten sensitivity. With most uh, drugs, other than opioids, uh, including alcohol, the, 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 the thing is that uh, if you abstain from it, you, you're perfectly fine. And again, it's very much like gluten sensitivity. If you abstain from gluten, you're fine. If you eat, you know, if you consume gluten, you get sick. For someone with more moderate to severe alcohol dependence, if they drink, they get sick. But if they abstain, they're perfectly fine. And what what distinguishes opioids is if they abstain, they're not perfectly fine. But even when they're on maintenance doses, uh, and they no longer have the, the this opioid deficiency syndrome, this lack of pleasure and everything. They they still miss the feeling of getting high, and they miss the escape. So sometimes people will have recurrences because of that. The I mean the medications are not a hundred percent effective, but there's very few things in healthcare that are a hundred percent effective except maybe penicillin for strep throat. Uh, However, you know, so it may be 60 to 70% effective Uh, for any given episode. Long-term, I think it's probably better than that. But um, But that's better than zero percentage.
0: Well, how can you know how much opiate damage has been done? Is there a way to know that?
1: Well, not easily, I mean, the science is gradually catching up, but the brain is so incredibly complicated that uh it, it it's um and it's proving to be much more complicated than anyone ever thought, just like uh genetics has proved to be much more complicated than anyone ever thought the uh, and it's going to take decades for us to develop ways of looking at this and modeling it and understanding it better the um but the, if someone's been using opioids uh, uh, addictively to, to get high for a year or more, one can pretty much assume that they will have these symptoms if they just try to abstain.
0: There's no cold turkey, is there? I mean, you, you can't just stop and never want to use again. The craving is going to be there. The desire to feel a certain way is probably going to stay there.
1: In most cases, that's correct. Now, there's always exceptions to any rule, and there are people who are able to get off and stay off. But it's it's a relatively small minority, and it has nothing. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with treatment, uh, at at least in any percentage that uh, that matters. Um, again, the, the results of comparison treatment have always been negative for abstinence-based treatments. You see, there's an inherent assumption there that the true treatment is counseling or participation in support groups. That's supposed to be the true, the gold standard treatment. When you look at the the, buprenorphine and methadone maintenance, it turns out that no more than minimal counseling is needed. Any additional counseling actually adds no value to in terms of outcomes it's primarily the medication they may need other treatments for coexisting mental health problems they may need psychotherapy uh for anxiety or depression or they may need other medications for those disorders as well um but but it, the um, but counseling is really uh almost completely ineffective when it comes to opioid addiction And again, that's a settled question. It's not controversial scientifically.
0: We're in the middle of our interviews on relapse, and I'm Barbara Alexander from On Good Authority. This second part of this podcast on relapse is taken from my recent interview with Brian Johnson, MD, Director of Addiction Medicine at Upstate University Hospital. Dr. Johnson said...
2: Uh, We we do drug-free treatment. It's an innovation in the field. We understand that once people get addicted, there's three reasons for them to relapse. One is they get rid of uncomfortable feelings with opioids. A second is they have permanent craving. They'll always want the drug, whether they use it or not. And other addictive drugs turn on craving, like my cigarette example. And the third is protracted withdrawal that we see opioids as a hormone, there's a receptor system in the brain. If you take exogenous hormone, like heroin, you uh, reduce your receptor system. And then when you go off the hormone, you have a protracted withdrawal because you have a debilitated receptor system.
0: Well, the first step obviously is the detox. But then this love-hate relationship with the with the dealer, so that gets transferred to, to the therapist.
2: Well, what, it, what you're tends to happen is, since using drugs is unconsciously hostile, when you stop being actively addicted, where does the hostility go? So often, it goes into the relationship with the analyst. So instead of uh, doing something that's incredibly hostile towards yourself and the people around you. Now you just hate your analyst and you go to hour after hour and tell your analyst what a bad person she or he is. And of course, if you're aware of this as the analyst, you're thinking, "Ah, Oh, this is great. Uh, it's a, uh, it's like an emotional detox. The patient is able to detoxify their hostility by applying it to you. So we may not resolve all those issues, but uh, the goal is not to do a definitive treatment in many cases. It's to help the person not keep repeating it by going to drug dealers who further torture and abuse them.
0: That's exactly the kind of helpful statement that that a person could use? I mean, why go back and repeat the torture?
2: Well, of course, the answer is because it's not conscious. So once something is not conscious, you tend to do it over and over again until someone helps to bring it to your conscious attention so that it can become a conscious conflict and you can use ambivalence rather than splitting. Oh, we see see addictive splitting here all the time. Drugs are the most wonderful thing in the world. People use idealization in the Melanie Klein sense of idealization is what you do about something you're terrified about and you can't stand to feel at. So every drug is idealized. Heroin is the coolest drug in the world. Cigarettes make you sexy. Few people can drink a whole case of beer like I can, and so on. And uh, on the other side is the terror that's less conscious. Drugs are idealized, and at the same time, they're deeply hated. And those two kinds of thinking are dissociated, so that you see alternately one and then the other lived out in the patient's life
0: we're now at the last of our three interviews on relapse and i'm barbara alexander from on good authority this part of the podcast on relapse is taken from my recent interview with dr ishani dalal who describes her work at the positive sobriety institute which combines medication and talk therapy and then she said
3: Uh, as far as relapse prevention goes it's it's really about like when they're out in the environment and, um, they're, they're maybe going past their favorite, um, place that they use and, you know, kind of recognizing the emotions and the automatic thoughts that are associated with that, um, setting and then basically recognizing that and going through this whole process of, you know, if I were to use, what would happen? And then, you know, how can I not go back down that road? So, learning these skills is very, very important while they're in treatment.
0: They still be taking the injectable naltrexone?
3: They would be taking it at that point in treatment. You know, usually they get well. They get a. They get time to have some sort of. um to settle in treatment, and then we bring it up with them, saying, You know this is this is a medication that is offered for opioid use disorder, and this can be used to help you maintain sobriety. and then the main thing is is that if they're on the injectable and then they use, they're not going to get that euphoria that high. so and that's what people are chasing is that euphoria and that high. So, um, they're not going to get that, so if they know that that, that they're not going to get it, then that automatically lessens their motivation to use so um that's that's definitely part of the treatment as well. It's both together
0: that's very important. Just staying with the injectable medication is that something that stops at a certain point, or is it a lifetime thing? The injectable,
3: and I think you know, the way to look at the injectable is that um, stopping stopping any kind of medication assisted treatment is is one of those situations that is extremely individualized. It is very important to see where the patient is at in terms of their addiction and recovery. If they've had a good go of you know maintaining sobriety, giving positive uh, or drug-free urines and engaging in treatment, whether it be group therapy, CBT, relapse, you know, uh, family therapy, um, individual therapy, whatever it may be, and they're doing well. Maybe after six six months, they may they may themselves say, you know, I think I'm re- You know, I'm ready to kind of try and see if I can handle. Um, maintaining sobriety without medication assisted treatment. And if they, if they have all those things in place, um, then it, it may be worth it, but, but really there is no exact timeline. And it's really a conversation that, um, a provider has with each patient.
0: How does the science view this? Is there a relapse right here?
3: In general, um, Those that tend to not be on medication-assisted treatment um, tend to relapse faster Um, because, I mean, one thing to remember about medication-assisted treatment is that for every medication-assisted treatment, there's the medication aspect, but then very much so there's there's the psychosocial treatment aspect. If they if they get detox and then they don't go into treatment, I think what the data data says is like within like a month or two two yeah within a month they've relapsed and also like um you know and, and that's risky because you know we're so worried about overdose in this population so um it's very very important to get them engaged in treatment and with some sort of medication assisted treatment as well. So, yeah, the relapse rates are quite high.
0: It's very frightening. What about the family treatment that you mentioned?
3: The family treatment is so extremely vital. First of all, you get so much more information about what was going on in the addiction process for the individual. The other aspect is is that um you learn about the dynamics of the family. A lot of times, you know, there may be uh, a lot of codependency going on in the family. So, and a lot of enabling behaviors by the family and they don't even know it. And so family therapy is important because one, just for education about opioid use disorder and what happens to the individual, what goes on in the brain Um, Because a lot of times the general public doesn't recognize that addiction is a disease of the brain. So it's not always a choice that people make and things like that. What are some of the enabling behaviors? Say someone's going through withdrawal, um, opioid withdrawal. A lot of times, and they've run out of um, prescription pain pills or they've run out of you know, whatever they were using, you know, and they know that a family member is prescribed opioids, then they may approach the family member and say, you know, I'm feeling real sick. Give me one of your uh, hydrocodone, you know, just, just this one time, just this one time, it'll get me out of my withdrawal. And, you know, the family member sees them suffering and says, and instead of saying, listen, this is where we really need to engage you in treatment, they may say, okay, fine. You know, here's one. And then it keeps happening and happening over and over again. Um, and that's an enabling behavior. So, um, and that's something that we see very often is that, you know, it, the individuals getting their opioids from family members, actually, these prescription pills. So, um, you know that's something that is uh very much a part of the uh addiction uh, uh the opioid use epidemic. I think that what's important in the beginning is um, learning healthy coping skills on how to deal with stressors. So and, and creating more tools in your tool belt um is very very important in early recovery so you know if you get in a fight with a family member how are you going to deal with that stressor because you know you definitely don't want to use things like that so creating those healthy coping skills creating that foundation is very very important in the beginning and detox is not treatment. <laughs> That's the last thing I want to say. <laughs> oh, wait, detox you have to explain that. Treat- Why, you have to explain
0: that. Why is detox not treatment?
3: A lot of people will say, okay, well, you know, I just need to get off the heroin. I just need to get off the heroin and then I'll be okay. Um, so just give me enough buprenorphine to get off the heroin um, for a week. You know, I hear that so much. Or I just need to be on methadone for like a week and then taper get me off the methadone, that's detox. Or they may just go into a facility and get detox for a week and then discharge. That And, 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 and they don't engage in further treatment like a PHP or an IOP or 12-step or NA, things like that. Um, and those are the situations where we see a lot of relapse occurring. So that's why I say Detox is not treatment for opioid use disorder. Get them engaged in something <laughs> is the goal. Getting them engaged in treatment after detox is the goal. So I can see that what, as a
0: what... I think, can see that as a great big red sign. <laughs> detox is yeah. not treatment. That was Ishani Dalal, and I'm Barbara Alexander. I hope you'll join me next week for our next podcast. And by the way. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.